0: Welcome. Thanks for tuning in to Grand Rounds, Connecticut Children's Office of Continuing Medical Education Pediatric Podcast. This podcast series will assist in developing new skill sets based on recent pediatric advances in a wide variety of specialties, identifying evidence-based data to support improved outcomes in pediatric healthcare delivery, increasing knowledge about research with implications for clinical practice. And now, here's Grand Rounds. Good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome to the Milton Markowitz uh, Honorary Lecture. Uh, we, we had one, the, actually we've had two the same year, it just happened to be the, the schedule, so the last one was in June. Uh, and this year is at the right proper time, which is the fall. That's when Dr. Markowitz uh, liked it, it was a preferable time for him to get together. And uh, I'm going to uh, introduce the speaker in just a little bit, uh, I think somebody that you you will appreciate. I certainly like her. The uh, Markowitz Lecture was initiated 24 years ago, it seems like a a while ago, to honor one of the most remarkable pediatricians of our time. And some of you in the audience that are logging in today knew Dr. Markowitz quite well. Some of you were recruited to the University of Connecticut back in the 1970s uh, to work in the new medical school. And, And many of you, and certainly all of us, have benefited from his great wisdom as a pediatrician. Uh, a true pediatrician in every sense of the word, a community pediatrician who devoted himself to children and families uh, and their academic careers, and then uh, really was a a staple in rheumatic fever prevention. He was born in June of 1918, and this is relevant because it was during the Spanish flu pandemic, the last pandemic that that we had before COVID-19. This year, he would be 103 years old, and we still remember Dr. Markowitz for many reasons. I was reading his biography yesterday, and he was one of those individuals that the AAP actually decided to do a, 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 you know, a piece in terms of you know, his career with an interview. Dr. Kamaitis has been the other person here in the Department of Pediatrics who's had that same honor from the AAP. Uh, And I can tell you that he received his undergraduate education from Syracuse University and then graduated magna cum laude from Syracuse University College of Medicine in 1943, just a few years ago. This was followed by an internship in New York City, uh, which was cut short uh, to nine months because he joined the Navy. And uh, some of you uh, that historians will remember this, that about a year after graduating from medical school and his 26th birthday, uh, Dr. Markowitz landed in Omaha Beach. Uh, and in, in his biography, you can read exactly what he was feeling as a medic coming into Omaha Beach, where more than 150,000 Allied troops uh, took part in the Normandy inv- invasion. Now, you would think that would be enough, and he came back to the U.S. Uh, he, he married his, his wife, Selma, uh, and then very soon after that, uh, he, he was sent to the Pacific, where he participated in the invasion of Okinawa. Incredible, you know, went Normandy, Okinawa and then survive as the war was over uh, a horrible explosion when his ship hit a, a mine in the South China Sea. Um, you know, when I look at this and say, you know, this gentleman who is the chair of the Department of Pediatrics, certainly uh, you read this and, and, and you, you feel, oh my gosh, you know, this is, you know, very difficult steps to follow. He was recruited in 1968 to the newly established University of Connecticut School of Medicine to be the first chairman of, of this Department of Pediatrics. His wife Selma and their four children, uh, David, Martha, Stephen, and Alice, moved to Hartford in the winter of 1969, a few years ago. He was professor and chair from 69 to 83, and then Dean of Student Affairs from 1983 until his retirement in 1992. He built the Department of Pediatrics from scratch. He recruited some of our best faculty that we've had over the years. Some of you are listening, I I trust, uh, including uh, Dr. John Ray, Bob Greenstein, who, who has passed, Arnie Altman, who I know is listening, Dr. Susan Ranson, among, amongst many others, who uh, were really some of our best faculty in the history of the Department of Pediatrics. At the same time, he had the foresight to develop a strong relationship with the local hospitals, including Hartford Hospital, uh, where Dr. Comides was the then chair of the Department of Pediatrics, and also Dr. Robert Kramer at New England Children's Hospital that tremendous relationship between people uh, at that high level allowed Connecticut Children's to be born in 1996. And it was was something that really we we owe Dr. Markowitz so much, not only for what he did for children, but for allowing this children's hospital to be born. I think he would be very proud of where we are right now, both in the Department of Pediatrics and and, 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 uh, as a a health system that's providing care for so many kids. So now uh, I have a tremendous honor to introduce the 2122 Markowitz speaker. Uh, I have to introduce Dr. Olga Torres Salazar, my better half. Uh, we will be celebrating 32 years of marriage on the 16th of December. Uh, it's been a wonderful, wonderful life with, with Olga, just seeing her work so hard on behalf of children. I'll tell you a few things about her I think is important that most of you probably know, but I, I think it's it's good to know. I graduated from uh, the University Javeriana in Bogota, Colombia. Uh, She did her postdoctoral research fellow at Brown University School of Medicine before doing an internship and residency at the University of Connecticut. And then she did her fellowship at the University of Minnesota in pediatric cardiology. And subsequently, already as as an attending uh, with children and very busy, decided that she would do something else. And she did a postdoctoral fellowship in cardiac imaging at Boston Children, where she learned her craft of cardiac MRI. But she's done many things in the past, and, uh, and some of these things perhaps are less well-known. And when we went back to Colombia, and uh, right after fellowship, uh, she and a, 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 a Dr. Kadavid, who was a surgeon who had trained at the Karolinska Institute, and decided they would uh, put together a pediatric cardiac program uh, at a private, uni- a private hospital in Cali, Colombia, and they actually did that. It was the first true pediatric cardiology program in Colombia, and during the three-year period we were in Colombia, she actually with Eduardo Cabide and the team, actually managed to operate five hundred children who otherwise probably would not have survived as a result of their congenital heart disease. She co-developed uh, with uh, her fellow, uh, her colleagues in cardiology, the non-invasive cardiac imaging program at Connecticut Children's, uh, and also the. Uh, and then during this time, with Dennis Mello, uh, our cardiac surgeon, actually started a program in Asuncion, Paraguay, uh, where they uh, uh, they were starting a pediatric congenital heart program. And that program is still ongoing in two, three hospitals in Asuncion, Paraguay, serving children as well. She developed a cardiac MRI program here at Connecticut Children's, Uh, actually went to Nuremberg to buy the MRI that is currently being used here, which is the 3T. Uh, and if you haven't seen the facility, you should go there. You feel like you have walked into the Star Trek set in terms of everything you see in that, in that location. And they've done more than 2,500 MRIs during the short period of time with this cardiac MRI. It is really a nationally and internationally known program. And then most, most recently, which is what you'll hear about today, is the development of the cardio-oncology program. So as you can see, Dr. Torres Salazar is always doing something, it's an innovation, keeping busy, it certainly keeps me busy, uh, doing all kinds of wonderful things. Uh, she is an outstanding mentor, and great colleague, to some of you who are listening, all of you who are listening. And uh, I could not be more proud to ask uh, Olga now to present her work in cardio-oncology, our past, present, and future, making a difference in the lives of pediatric cancer patients. Dr. Salazar, the podium is yours.
1: Thank you so much, Juan Carlos, for this beautiful introduction. Um, I'm very appreciative of all these uh, um, compliments. So it is my uh, pleasure and my honor to present this lecture in honor of Dr. Milton Markowitz a founder of uh, the Department of Pediatrics and instrumental in the development of uh, our understanding of the pathophysiology of rheumatic fever and the use of antibiotics as a primary prevention strategy. My talk today is in regards to cardioncology. oncology this is an emerging discipline that is focused predominantly on the detection and the management of cancer treatment-induced cardiac dysfunction. And this would not have been possible with the pioneer uh, work of Dr. Victor Ferranz a native Colombian cardiologist, MD, PhD. He served as the chief of the Ultrastructural Section of the Pathology Branch of the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute of the NIH until 1994, and he was the chief of the Pathology Section until his death. His pioneer work in anthracycline-induced cardiotoxicity in the 1970s and 80s represents a true legacy in our understanding of the structural, functional, and biochemical components of anthracycline-induced cardiotoxicity as well as the development of a primary prevention strategy with the use of accolading agent uh, ICR 187, which is currently uh, in use uh, to this date. Uh, Dr. Uh, Victor Ferranz was a dear friend of Dr. Jose Maria Salazar Buccelli, Juan Carlos dad. uh, At the time of his retirement, uh, Jose Maria gave me all his beautiful books, and among uh, the books that he gave me included this cancer treatment and the heart. And this uh, included all the work that Dr. Victor Ferranz had done during the 1970s and 80s, which today guides the way I approach uh, these diseases. My objectives today are to describe the association between cancer and heart disease in pediatric cancer patients, the growing evidence of cardiovascular effects of cancer-related therapies, and need for surveillance and co-management of cardiovascular disease before, during, and after cancer treatment, and describe the advances in research and innovation at Connecticut Children's that has led to the development of, of, of our cardiology program. There is continued increased incidence in the cancer diagnosis in pediatric patients and a decreased cancer mortality that is due mostly to the developments in cancer therapy. But despite that, one in four of the 500 childhood cancer survivors in the United States may die of cardiovascular heart disease. So this for me and for our team is a truly a partnership for life. And what we're facing right now is the tip of the iceberg with a new development of cancer medications with potential cardiotoxic effects. We're just starting our work in cardioncology. There are multiple cardiovascular side effects of chemotherapy and radiation, from the involvement of the cardiomyocyte that leads to heart failure with medications such as anthracyclines, or the new uh, tyrosine kinase and uh, VEGF inhibitors, to the effect in the endothelium with medications such as cisplatin, the devastating effects of radiation therapy that include damage of the uh, endothelium with uh, development of early onset coronary artery disease, valvular disease, pericardial cardiac calcification and myocardial disease to so the devastating effects uh, that involve in arrhythmias for certain medications such as arsenic that can increase uh, the long QT and, and lead to life-threatening uh, arrhythmias. The way we approach cardiotoxicity is based on a risk model. We know that younger age, uh, treatment, uh, genetic predisposition, how these uh, medications are metabolized in the body, uh, the use of uh, increased use of uh, uh, Higher doses of cumulative antracycline dose, use of other uh, concomitant medications, female gender radiation therapy, uh, and uh, increasing lifespan can all increase the risk of cardiotoxicity. This risk modulates the cardiotoxicity and leads to an acute toxicity, which is uh, characterized by myocyte apoptosis and damage of that beautiful extracellular collagen that leads to myocardial dysfunction. That initiates a smoldering process that we call adverse cardiac remodeling that leads to myocy- that myocyte hypertrophy, microscopic uh, fibrosis, and the development of heart failure. As uh, Dr. Fermat taught us, this involves multiple areas of the myocyte, including the extracellular matrix, uh, the myofibrils in the myocardium, the, the nucleus, and this triggers uh, apoptosis of the myocardial cell. There has been studies in um, um, red models of tracycline induced cardiotoxicity, where you see that there is complete loss of that extracellular collagen matrix that leads to uh, myocardial slippage, myocardial dysfunction, and increase in apoptotic. Um, in addition, this is compensated by diffuse fibrosis that accounts for some of the diastolic dysfunction that is seen in this patient uh, population. So we approach this disease based on stages in development of heart failure. So we know that every patient that is exposed to a cardiotoxic medication will be at stage A, that is at risk for development of heart failure. Stage B represents the abnormal structural heart disease that we identify by imaging without the uh, the, the uh, symptoms of heart failure. So it is imperative that we uh, provide primary and secondary prevention strategies during stage A and B to avoid the development of clinical heart failure with uh, very bad outcomes after diagnosis that uh, with a five-year overall survival or less than 50% in these pediatric patients. So we modify outcome-specific risk in survivors, uh, and we can do that uh, by decreasing these uh, cardiomyopathy risk uh, curve to the right. We can provide primary uh, and secondary prevention strategies that include the use of heart failure medications uh, exercise, diet, and um, uh, aggressive management of comorbidities, including obesity, sedentary lifestyle, hypertension, uh, hyperlipidemia, diabetes, that can affect and significantly worsen the outcome in in these uh, survivors. So, what is our timeline over the next over the next? Step, 20 minutes of this presentation, I'll walk you through um, what has been our journey in the development of Cardio-Oncology program from the early identification of biomarkers both in echo and MRI to the development of a risk stratification uh, tool that allow us to understand the risk in our cancer population of patients, uh, the creation of the Cardio-Oncology clinic. More recently, our involvement in the development of national guidelines for imaging both for the American Society of Echo and cardiac magnetic resonance imaging and hopefully um, from this time on with the creation of the Center of Cardio-Oncology Health and Innovation for Pediatric Cancer Patients at Connecticut Children's. So our journey started in 2013 with the development of early imaging biomarkers and this is all truly based on our understanding of cardiotoxicity. This slide from our mouse model of cardiotoxicity represents the typical findings of acute cardiotoxicity, which include mononuclear cell infiltration and the presence of vacuoles, which represent the dilatation of the, of the endoplasmic reticulum. This uh, leads uh, uh, multiple changes, lead to myofibril uh, degeneration and, and myocyte apoptosis. In the chronic state, there is activation of MMPs, TIMPs, development of, of microscopic fibrosis. There's dedifferentiation of the myosin um, um, and uh, development eventually of microscopic uh, fibrosis. And in the chronic state, we see at the top of this uh, slide, the development of myocyte hypertrophy. You can understand why there could be myocardial deformation abnormalities in this patient population and and um, in, in more infiltration of, of, of Uh, inflammatory cells and fibrosis. Why cardiac magnetic resonance imaging? Well, uh, cardiac MRI uh, is the standard of care in the evaluation of left ventricular volume, mass and function. It allows us to uh, identify myocardial deformation, and we'll talk a little bit about that. We can do tissue characterization with identification of replacement fibrosis, as you can see there on the late gadolinium enhancement. It allows the identification of microscopic fibrosis uh, with the use of parametric maps. And more recently, it allows uh, uh, the use of 40 flow for the, our understanding of uh, vascular stiffness of significant importance in the development of cardiovascular Disease. In 2013, as mentioned previously, we started with uh, the development of early imaging biomarkers to, uh, to understand how we can detect this uh, uh, toxicity earlier. Um, we enrolled um, uh, uh, pilots, uh, 20 patients in a pilot study, and we followed them through treatment, uh, doing cardiac MRIs at set cumulative doses of anthracyclines. Not surprisingly, we found that there was a decline in ejection fraction in most of this patient population, and there, there was a percent change in EF, as you can see on the right-hand side, of, on all but one of these patients. We then uh, uh, try to understand uh, the volumetric changes that occur in these patient populations. We saw a great, gradual decrease in ejection fraction with gradual decrease in end systolic uh, volume index. In addition, uh, we looked at myocardial deformation and myocardial deformation really looks at how the heart is contracting at the time uh, during the cardiac cycle. So you can see that there is a positive strain which is a change in length in in the radial direction as the heart is contracting uh, from a thin myocardium to a thick myocardium and a negative strain by shortening in the circumferential and and longitudinal direction. Concomitant to these changes, there is decrease in left ventricular mass, decrease in left ventricular mass volume ratio, there's an increase in systolic fiber stress, and eventually the development of uh, uh, myocardial uh, dysfunction. We wanted to see uh, if imaging by strain or imaging by myocardial deformation could Really antecede the development of uh, the drop in ejection fraction. And we saw that both global uh, circumferential strain magnitude, as you can see in this slide, was decreased as well as global longitudinal strain, and that these early changes preceded the changes in, in ejection fraction. This is an example of uh, myocardial strain, and this is depicted by colors with normal kinetic depicted as blue, hypokinesis depicted as as green, and akinesis depicted as yellow. So this is the baseline myocardial deformation map of the heart, base, mid, and apical. And uh, we can see how it it really, significantly decreases the myocardial deformation at the time of treatment. And if we provide aggressive therapy with heart failure um, medication, including carvedilol and Enalapril at an early time, we can uh, actually re- uh, re- return most of these uh, myocardial segments to their baseline uh, function. We then went on to the identification on Im- imaging biomarkers of late cardiotoxicity. We, um, Enrolled a cross section of patients that had been treated with cancer medications uh, a minimum of two years to 20 years after uh, the end of chemotherapy. And we published this in 2013 in circulation. We found that myocardial deformation abnormalities indicating subclinical cardiotoxicity are highly prevalent among late childhood cancer survivors. So there is still a chance to recover the myocardium in these patients before the overt uh, devastating effect of, of, of heart failure. We also used um, a native T1 and ECV. Uh, this is based on the properties of the, of the proton in the myocardium uh, that when stimulated uh, with the resonant uh, frequency, wants to go back in alignment with the magnetic field. So we can actually measure the myocardial uh, relaxation time. And we found that increasing native T1 relaxation and increasing the extracellular volume are c- typical characteristics of this uh, patient population. We wanted to prevent the development of heart failure, and, and uh, unfortunately, this uh, slide is not, uh, is not working. But if, if it was, you would see that there is a decrease in myocardial dysfunction, that there is an increase in the uh, volumes of the heart, and that this patient that is in refractory heart failure already has evidence of, uh, of pulmonary edema and pleural effusions. Um, this patient unfortunately died awaiting heart transplantation at the age of 29 years. Once we understood the findings by cardiac MRI, then we went on echocardiography. Echocardiography is currently the standard of care in the screening of this patient population. And we wanted to understand the feasibility of echocardiographic techniques to detect subclinical cancer damage in the heart. And we found that 3D echo derived ejection fraction less than 55 and not surprisingly, an increase in systolic volume index with thresholds of 28 to 32 mL per meter square, a global longitudinal strain magnitude that was more than minus 17 percent, and a decrease in the early atrial myocardial velocity at the interventricular septum, which is a measurement of stiffness of the myocardium, were the earliest parameters by echo that we could uh, identify in this patient population. Based on that, in 2016, we established protocols to perform cardiac magnetic resonance imaging and echocardiography, which were used to this date uh, to screen our patient population after that we wanted to understand who are these patients and for that we, we created a registry of, of, of patients that had been exposed to cardiotoxicity we wanted to understand the risk factors in our own pediatric cancer population and we wanted to understand the effect of myocardial dysfunction in cardiac morbidity and all cause mortality in these patients and we found, not surprisingly, that HI diagnosis, cumulative dose, radiation to the heart, the use of a, well, bone marrow transplantation, and previous heart disease were significant risk factors for the development of myocardial dysfunction. But very importantly, that once you develop a myocardial dysfunction, uh, and if you ever develop a previous shortening infraction on less than 29 during or after cancer therapy, significantly increased the risk of all-cause mortality. There was an eight-fold increased risk. And not surprisingly, when we looked at our survival analysis curve, we uh, we realized that patients who had had myocardial dysfunction at any time previously during their disease had a 50% survival compared to patients who didn't have any myocardial involvement. So all the gains uh, that we have obtained through the development of new cancer medications are truly being lost to cardiotoxicity. Based on these findings, we we use um, developed this risk stratification tool that we use in every single patient that we see in our cardiology clinic. And uh, this is basically based on those risk factors that we identified, as mentioned previously, uh, young age at repair, radiation therapy to the heart, the use of alkaloids, anthracycline cumulative dose, uh, radiation to the heart, bone marrow transplantation, but very important also the associated uh, cardiovascular risk factors including Hypertension, hyperlipidemia, diabetes, sedentary lifestyle. So we now re-stratify our patients in low, moderate, and high risk, and we provide uh, personalized care based on this re-stratification. With that, with those two tools in mind, imaging biomarkers and the creation of our car- of our re-stratification tool, we went there they're ready to for the creation of our cardio-oncology clinic. And as I mentioned uh, previously, we manually re these patients and we provide, uh, try to provide personalized care to each one, one of them. We have I, I identified that, um, thankfully, most of our patients are currently on stage A, but a significant proportion of patients have already gone into development of uh, stage B, with a minor on stage C and D, uh, uh, meaning uh, potentially with poor outcomes. And very importantly, we identified that our risk score stratification, our risk score number correlates very well with heart failure stage in this patient population, which validates the risk stratification that we're currently used. We then went on to the creation of imaging and clinical pathways of care based on that restratification. stratification and these currently are part of the uh, the, uh, guidelines that will be used nationally. So the work uh, that we have done at Connecticut Children's is contributing nationally to our understanding of how to best image these patients, both with ECHO and with MRI. Our research, um, very close to my heart, has been uh, instrumental in the development of the cardiology program. We have worked on the detection of new cardiotoxicity biomarkers in patients treated with anthracyclines. Um, these are publications where we uh, use of integrated imaging, both with cardiac MRI and certain biomarker profiles, to identify subclinical dysfunction. We have, have identified that cytokines, MMPs. CIMPs and upregulation of SRH is present in this patient population. We have also identified a number of microRNAs that may could be potentially be used in early identification of these patients, with upregulation of, of, of uh, microRNAs that are involved uh, with myocardial toxicity and downward regulation of uh, microRNAs that are in, involved in myocardial development and uh, in these patients we also developed an aic model in the cross collaborative mice that has really to try to started to understand the genetic underpinnings of this condition so back in 2018, we uh, 19 we described the uh, induced cardiotoxicity in the cross collarative mice. How it recapitulates the cardiotoxicity in humans. How we were able to uh, understand that there is diversity in the way that both mice and humans respond to cardiotoxicity. And for that, we use um, uh, a collaredive cross my, uh, mice mice. This is mice that are um, basically are coming from. The most common strains in the world. And these mice are inbred, and you can create a, a, a specific genetic backgrounds that then can be inbred and cloned and can be used for this uh, type of research. So, for this, we use 10 different uh, genetic backgrounds uh, in 10 different uh, inbred uh, uh, strains of, of collaborative cross strains. We created an acute and a chronic model of cardiotoxicity. And we applied this pathology score that was developed by Carolyn size, one of our co-investigators from Yale University. As uh, uh, we explained previously, acute cardiomyocyte vacuolation and infiltration of mononuclear cells correspond to acute cardiotoxicity and interstitial fibrosis with myofiber disarray, myocyte hypertrophy to chronic toxicity. So she developed this very uh, helpful uh, uh, pathology score, which allow us to identify uh, the the, the response to cardiotoxicity in in different strains. And um, what you see here, um, and I'll try to point here, At the bottom here you see the different uh, CC strains, and you can see that on the top panel here is the acute cardiotoxicity, uh, and uh, at the bottom the cardiac score for chronic cardiotoxicity. And you see how these, some of these strains are resistant to the effects of uh, anthracyclines here, and here, and you can see that in the chronic state, there are some that are very susceptible, and uh, but there's still some that are uh, very uh, resistant to the toxic effects. And this really reflects the genetic diversity that we see uh, in our patient population. We continue um, uh, into the future we, uh, with grants that, we're planning to, uh, that we have sent or plan to send in the near future that include the impact of home-based exercise intervention program on mitigating heart failure in childhood cancer survivors, a population-based science type of research with the use of social determinants of health and restratification stratification tool to model cardiotoxicity in childhood cancer survivors, and our collaboration um, with Drs. Emily Germain-Lee and Sajin lee in the role of transforming growth factor beta signaling pathway on on cardiotoxicity from chemotherapeutic agents and the potential use of to examine potential effect of blocking myostatin activin and uh, pathway uh, pharmacologically in the prevention of this cardiotoxicity in the mouth. So very promising potential primary prevention strategy as a result of, of this research. What is our future? The, the creation of a Center of Excellence for Cardioncology Health and Innovation for Cancer Survivors. We're currently uh, uh, in the later developments of, these, of, the, of the structure for this program at Connecticut Children's. Our uh, vision statement is the preservation of global cardiovascular health in childhood cancer patients that are grounded on the principles of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And our mission is truly to eliminate cardiotoxicity among pediatric cancer survivors. We want to provide personalized care, uh, cardiology oncology care through multidimensional uh, uh, phenotyping of these patients that would lead to an extensive re-stratification of patients into low, uh, medium, and high risk to be able to provide monitoring and personalized primary and secondary prevention strategies based on this re-stratification. And for that, uh, we pro- propose the development of cardio-oncology digital ecosystem that has three basic components. Our collection plan that will initially uh, uh, imply that development of a re- registry within the electronic medical records that would allow us to obtain all that very important information that will go then into a storage plan where this integrated data that comes not only from our... Uh, uh, EHR, but also from our genetic lab or digital personal health records, including uh, 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 steps or uh, physiologic data from the patient to be integrated into this storage plan converted to common data elements that would allow us deep learning algorithms with artificial intelligence that would do an extended restratification of these patients that would allow us to assign pathways of care for the primary and secondary prevention of cardiotoxicity, and that would allow us to understand the development, emergence, and progression of disease based on specific outcomes that are based, uh, that are defined as heart failure stage in, uh, and with imaging biomarkers. This would then could be uh, used locally uh, in our system to provide the care that we need to our cardiology oncology patients, but would allow a multicenter approach through public repositories or the development of research um, uh, with uh, NIH repositories. With that, I want to thank everyone uh, that has helped me in the development of this program. Of course, all my colleagues at Connecticut Children's, our Division of Pediatric Cardiology, uh, without their daily help, I would not have been able to do this. Uh, The Division of Pediatric Oncology, without supporting the development of this program, our research department with their ongoing uh, support, our patient safety and quality, uh, led le- by Lori Pelletier, uh, Zee, and Ilana Warwick in the development of the pathways of care, our bone and rare disorders uh, uh, that is guided by Dr. Emily German Lee and Dr. Uh, Seijin Lee, our ECHO and lab team, our ECHO technologies, our MRI technologies without whom we could not do this work, and our Connecticut Children's Foundation. There are many others outside of, of Connecticut Children's that had helped in the development of all this work. So thank you to all. And I'll open this for questions.
0: Thank you. Thank you very much for that tour of the forest on cardio, cardio and uh, we have um, about 150 participants, and uh, we certainly have uh, plenty of time for, for questions. Uh, so please go ahead and use your Q&A. And while people people are doing that, perhaps, uh, I think it's very striking if we can go back. Um, Steve, I'm gonna ask you to look for a slide. And um, it, the, if you could go back and, uh, it, you know, it was really striking from Dr. Ferrans was the, 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 the rat work where the myocardium and how severely it gets damaged. Uh, to me, that's very striking, and I was wondering if you could just go over that slide a little, a little uh, slower so we can actually, you know, try to understand what actually happens in and-
1: it's really important to understand that it has a devastating effect on the myocardial cell. It can damage the extracellular matrix. It can destroy it, as I'll show you in the red model that follows this, but it really affects significantly the 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 works of the myocyte at the sarcomere level, at the end, level of the endoplasmic reticulum, at the level of the mitochondria, and it and also the level of the nucleus. And this triggers pathways, uh, caspases. Dependent and independent um, uh, apoptotic pathways that leads to my site uh, uh, death. And uh, very importantly, um, this was, again, uh, a rat model. And I I have to stress that uh, Dr. Ferranz was really instrumental in the development of multiple animal models of cardiotoxicity, mouse, rat, rabbit, Uh, and uh, really in our understanding of not only the pathology, uh, uh, but also uh, how to develop these models that really helps us in the understanding of this disease. Um, And I I, uh, thank Juan Carlos for uh, allowing me to go over this slide again. Uh, the myocardium is is embedded into this beautiful collagen matrix that we called uh, that it gets completely denuded and destroyed by the anthracyclines as you see uh in the the slide in the middle and then gets replaced by diffuse fibrosis uh, that leads to the uh Stiffness that we see in 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 relationship to myocardial dysfunction. So truly, this is a devastating uh, condition that is mostly related to the damage, the oxidative stress damage that occurs on the my, on the myocardium as a result of this binding of hydrocyclines and the metal and the toxic metabolic components that are formed uh, when we re, reacting with uh, with oxygen.
0: And, and then before we go to the questions we have some uh, there's another slide that i think it's worth reviewing
1: uh, in the early 1980s androcycline induced cardiotoxicity can be uh, di- di- uh, divided into acute uh, so acute chronic and uh, what we see here are the acute effects of antracycline induced cardiotoxicity. So this is our slides that represent uh, from our mouse model of cardiotoxicity, and this is uh, how we apply the pathology score that I met, uh, previously uh, mentioned. What you see here at the right upper quadrant is the development of these vacuoles that are at the result of the dilatation of the sarcoplasmic reticulum, and at the same time you see all that myocardial disarray that is at the result of the myofibrillar degeneration. You see that there is infiltration of multiple multiple. multiple mononuclear cells. And in the next slide, um, you see that there's activation of MMPs uh, that lead to uh, the uh, alterations in collagen that we described. that triggering of caspase 3 that leads to uh, myocardial cell apoptosis. And then the development on the left-hand side, as you see in that reticulin um, uh, st- stain of microscopic uh, fibrosis, uh, which is devastating. And what I find really interesting is see how the architecture of the myocardium at the top of our, uh, of our chronic state, you see that there's myocyte hypertrophy, so that you truly lose that beautiful spindle uh, myocardial uh, architecture that allows contraction to occur.
0: Great. And we have, so we have several questions here that have come up. First one is, can you elaborate on the cost of care for pediatric patients to both identify image biomarkers and, and, and the subsequent enrollment for treatment in the newly founded clinic? What is the cost or maybe the, the cost of not doing it as well?
1: I think that it truly, well, thank you for that question, is truly the cost of not doing it. Uh, if we don't do this, these patients are going to be uh, affected by uh, advanced heart failure and that will require significant investment, if you were thinking just about cost, in, uh, to our health system. But more importantly, it's the cost to the patient's uh, life, which is why we're trying to improve. These patients uh, will go on into development of heart failure in the mid, mid to uh, late 20s and uh, will die, one in four will may die of cardiovascular uh, complications of this devastating disease. By doing primary prevention, uh, we are actually uh, uh, saving uh, lots of dollars uh, in, the t- t- in the care of these patients by applying early these early biomarkers both in imaging and serologic biomarkers and identifying disease earlier will be able uh, to treat these patients aggressively and restore myocardial health to their baseline so it's a really important prevention strategy and a re, uh, that us- uh, Dr. Markowitz did with rheumatic fever uh, will significantly decrease this epidemic of cardiovascular disease as a result of of, the, of these cancer therapies in this patient population.
0: Thanks, Steve. You can stop sharing the slides for a second. A um, couple of questions from your colleagues, from Dr. Heller and from Dr. David. Um, the first one is, How uh, can you talk about the role of exercise in protecting against cardiotoxicity?
1: Yeah, this is really very close to my heart, and I I did not include all the slides uh, because of time constraints, but we have developed, uh, we we did a study where we looked uh, in a group of patients at the effects of uh, exercise in this patient population, Uh, and we found that it significantly decreases uh, the adverse cardiac remodeling that we see in these patients, and and we were able to correlate it with changes in cardiac magnetic resonance imaging with improvement not only in left ventricular mass, but decreases in left ventricular and systolic volume and improvement in myocardial function. Exercise is a key element in the primary prevention of uh, cardiotoxicity, and we're very very invested in the development of a uh, home intervention program that will allow these patients uh, to do this on a routine basis. uh, in in our future work. So thank you for that very, very important question.
0: From uh, one of our pediatricians, Mary Simon, uh, and she asks, how old is your oldest patient? What maximum ages do you see up in general uh, when there is, is there a transition to adult cardiology and which hospitals do you work with?
1: Okay, that's all very, very important questions. Because of the population that we serve at, at um, at Connecticut Children's in the sarcoma program that we have, we currently follow patients well into their mid-30s. But as any other chronic condition in, um, in, in medicine, we also work with uh, Hartford HealthCare in the transition of these patients. Uh, you know, as they reach older populations, we continue the imaging on all patients though. So we have referrals from Hartford Hospital and around the state for, to continue doing the cardiac imaging at Connecticut Children's so uh we uh currently uh are uh, seeing our uh, patients who are being enrolled in cancer therapy and as i mentioned up to probably the mid low to high 20s and mid 30s
0: from uh, uh, dr g i assume this is dr gillen i think it is uh, truly a tour the force brilliant work olga thank you on behalf of all of our oncology patients i think that's eileen gillen i'm almost certain uh, Thank.
1: In, um, you know, with, without the unwavering uh, support of uh, oncology uh, with uh, Eileen and Andrea uh, and Dr. Isakov, it would have been impossible to, to, to create this, this program.
0: From uh, Dr. Zellneritis, a nice model for coordination of work from bench to bedside. How is this coordinated? Do you have a group meetings across the spectrum to coordinate efforts periodically? Or does this happen spontaneously uh, and just uh, and you just keep track of it? How does the funding work?
1: So nothing happens uh, spontaneously. This is the result of a hard, of a hard work of a team of, of members and, and this would not be possible without uh, the support uh, uh, that I have from uh, the quality team, Lori Pelletier, we develop a charter, which is really important because it focuses our efforts uh, in, in a time uh, fashion that allows us to move forward. So truly a coordinated effort, very coordinated effort that has been uh, the work of, of, as you saw, a, a a big team of members of Connecticut Children's and also outside of Connecticut Children's. Also something that I want to emphasize is that one should not be afraid to call experts around the world. Um, I have done that uh, in in my collaborations outside of Connecticut Children's in the development of biomarkers, in the development of the mouse model of of cardiotoxicity, have been really uh, a phone call away uh, with the support of these amazing uh, scientists.
0: Dr. Sachi, what is the percentage of mortality and morbidity in children treated for cancer due to cardiac damage?
1: So what I mentioned is that it's a highly prevalent. Uh, as as a, There is an increased incidence of uh, heart failure that is at least 14 times compared to the general population. As mentioned previously, one in four patients may die of cardiovascular disease. Uh, these uh, truly is, as mentioned previously, the tip of the iceberg. There are many uh, underlying uh, uh, findings that we're not still identifying in certain cancer therapies, such as the thyroxine kinase inhibitors and the new VEGF inhibitors and others that are coming down the pipe. So truly it's it's as a result of a beautiful uh, uh, development of cancer therapies, but a a side effect that we really need to uh, approach in a systematic way to be able to uh, mitigate and prevent the development of cardiotoxicity in this patient group.
0: From uh, Dr. Isakoff, to what degree does the use of dex, uh, DEXRA, I think it is, um, yeah, it, it mitigate the histological effects of anthracyclines that were shown with the effects shown by electromicroscopy? Since virtually all patients with Connecticut Children's receive cardioprotection, I'm curious, the global impact of anthracycline to existing in our patient populations compared to what has been demonstrated in the literature, which is primarily without cardioprotection.
1: I think that the, the use of dexrazoxane, uh, as I mentioned previously, uh, affects one of the pathways of anthracycline induced cardiotoxicity, which is basically chelating iron in the myocardium uh, that prevents uh, that oxidative stress. But there are uh, other mechanisms that include involvement of the nucleus to- topoisomerase B that are not really affected by this pathway. So uh, if I had to uh, calculate the impact, it probably would be an impact of about 50% in the decreasing toxicity, but not fully. And then the other thing that is really important to understand here is that these patients are treated with multiple medications. So they are a, a classic patient that is treated uh, for leukemia or lymphoma, receives being uh, increasing iophosphamide. Sometimes they're exposed to bone marrow transplantation, radiation therapy, it, and all these risk factors contribute to the cardiotoxicity so that one element of chelation therapy would not possibly uh, prevent uh, cardiotoxicity in this patient population.
0: From Susan Ratson, and I think this is Susan Ratson, not Richard Ratson, usually uses the same, same name. It says, congratulations, Olga, Real Real borrowed the force.
1: <laughs> you it to Susan to you know,
0: put in something like that. Uh, it was our good fortune to recruit you back in, in the in 1980s, uh, just a few years ago. Thank you, Susan. Thank you, Susan. Uh, Ching Lao, uh, Dr. Lao asked, uh, thanks, Olga, for your work in advancing cardiac care for our long term cancer survivors. Uh, with the cloud based technology enabling global data integration and harmonization, we're very excited about the possibility of collaborating with other investigators worldwide if, in further improvement of the cardiac health of our patients. So, comment on the cloud use. To improve this, this is so
1: important so um as i always say this has been a manual labor of love but this is not a way to really approach a, a disease of, of these proportions so we need a systematic approach in um and i am committed to the development of the, an innovative tool that would allow this cloud-based approach to obtain and be able to uh, get information of all these risk factors that lead to cardiotoxicity, to be able to use uh, now available artificial intelligence and advanced uh, 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 techniques to understand how we expand this risk stratification, how we understand emergence of disease, and how we can collaborate uh, with other institutions. One of the things that occurs in pediatrics that is truly not the same in the adult medicine is that we're all in silos in each, children's hospital we need to expand this collaboration to a multi-center approach i think one of my goals of the next year is to develop a registry a multi-center registry among pediatric centers in the united states and i with our link to the society of cardiac magnetic resonance imaging which is an international uh uh Institution will be able to bring this to other parts of, of the world. So I think that this is the only uh, possibility: is a systematic approach and our collaborative approach in the in the development of prevention strategies and decrease and mitigation of uh, cardiovascular complications of cancer therapy.
0: Uh, comment from uh, Rosa Rodriguez from our research department. Proud to have been part of this group effort in the beginning stages. Congrats to Dr. Olga Salazar and team. Thank
1: Rosa. you. Thank you, Rosa. Uh,
0: from uh, from uh, Dr. Messia, um, your colleague Olga, uh, thank you for the presentation. Can you please elaborate on the ideal cost-effective timing algorithm for echo MRI imaging in the surveillance of cardiotoxicity?
1: So, going back to our uh, heart failure stage classification, it truly is during stage A and stage B of heart failure that we need to. Uh, look at ways of imaging and as I mentioned before serologic biomarkers that will help us identify uh, cardiotoxicity. We currently do this in our clinic so we have strict echo and MRI protocols that we use that allow us to identify these changes earlier. We work in close collaboration with our oncology team and we're actually aggressively treating these patients uh, and we are for the most part able to uh, restore myocardial function in a large number of these patients so it's truly during that primary state where patients have not developed clinical heart failure where we have our best opportunity to have an impact a lasting impact on the cardiovascular health of these patients
0: great thank you very much that was the 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 last question Um, I think Dr. Markowitz would be proud of the work that you have done here with your team, and it's a very large team. So obviously we thank that entire team for, for supporting the kids and the, the oncology division, the cardiology division, uh, Laurie's team, and, and so many that have contributed to the betterment of the children's lives uh, in, this, in this field. So thank you again for the presentation. Thank you, Aaron, for joining. We had a good outcome here, good, uh, good people joining. Uh, we have uh, on Friday, uh, I ask you to join us again for Ask the Experts with Dr. John Shriver who will be giving you updates on the, the 15th letter of the Greek alphabet, uh, Omicron, that's, uh, that's the new name for the variant that's coming out of uh, Southern Africa and it's already spread through the world. Uh, a little bit scary, but we'll we'll sort it out for you. So please join us on Friday and again on Tuesday for Grand Rounds. Again, thank you everyone for joining. Have a safe day. Get your boosters if you haven't gotten your boosters. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Grand Rounds. For the most recent updates, please consider subscribing or find us on our Facebook group, Connecticut Children's Continuing Medical Education, or online at connecticutchildrens.org podcast grand rounds.